Hello and welcome back to Chicks and Balls, the podcast, a sports podcast by women about more than women's sport. On today's show, things are a little bit different. Keely is away at a touch tournament and things are pretty busy for all of us this week. So instead of our regular ep, we have a very wholesome and lovely conversation that Georgia had with retired Paralympian Katie Kelly. We hope you enjoy this chat and we'll be back for our regular programming next week. Katie Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome to Chicks and Balls. You are joining us all the way from Amos Farms in sunny Queensland. How are you? (laughs) I'm good, George, and it is so beautiful to be at this farm and sunny coast where I'm working from home this week. So great to be on on the call with you. Lovely. A little bit of context for everyone. Katie is currently staying at my family farm with my mum, which is very sweet. <laughs> we start every interview the same way, which is important for athletes. It's a warm-up. It's a fast five. Um, so we've got five fast questions, and then we'll get into the real stuff. So first of all, sauce in the fridge or the pantry? Um, pantry, sweet. Yeah, nice and cold and fresh. Beautiful. Favourite movie of all time? Oh, The English Patient. It is the most intense love story. And my sister and I watched it and it was like afterwards we needed a, you know, a little shot of gin or something. It was um, quite the movie, yeah. Beautiful. Um, Favourite country you've ever raced in? I would say country would be Japan. The Japanese are such beautiful people and so warm and welcoming. And it was the place that I raced the most and all kudos for them for hosting the Paralympics as well. So I'd give that to the Japanese. Awesome. Do you have a pump-up song? Like in my teens, it was Footloose. (laughs) Stunning. (laughs) Oh, you don't know Footloose? No, I do. Amazing. Oh, yeah. It's a really daggy song. Gosh, just very embarrassing to be admitting that. But, um, oh, there's probably a host of them. I do love a a good bit of um, Tom Petty. Um, He's got some great songs. He's always been a favourite. Lovely. And fifth and final, topical on your week with my mum, how do you take your coffee? Almond cappuccino, three shots, large. Stunning. What a noise. (laughs) (laughs) beautiful okay into the real stuff though so Mm. we originally planned to have this chat late last year you're a very busy woman and a lot has changed since then so firstly how is retirement retirement has been um fantastic i mean i finished up the tokyo paralympics at the ripe age of 46 so i don't know many 46 year olds certainly none of my friends and family were training up to 25 hours a week with swim, bike, run, um, really intense, hard session, training alongside Olympians that, you know, I could have been their mother. So um, <laughs> you can imagine finishing the Tokyo Paralympics, crossing that finish line with the extra year because of COVID, um, I was well and truly done. And so, but at the same time, so grateful for everything the Paralympics gave me to be a two-time Paralympian, to meet the Paralympians I did, you know, the, the likes of Danny DeToro and, um, you know, Scooter, Grant Patterson and Prue Watts. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and name people, other Paralympians people don't know, but it is when you're part of the Paralympic movement, you're part of this amazing big family. So 
to answer your question, retirement is fantastic. And uh, it's funny to think I was retiring at 46, you know, and retiring back to professional working life, which is what I obviously did for 15, 20 years before I started Parachiloathlon at 39. Yeah, amazing. Well, we'll go right back to the beginning and then probably finish up just where we've started. So tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? You grew up in a massive family. What role did sport play for you as a kid? Yeah, so casino, northern New South Wales, unfortunately affected by the floods recently, just near Lismore. Although I used to tell people I lived near Byron Bay because it sounded a bit more exotic. We were about an hour from Byron Bay. And so that's where we spent all our holidays in the 80s. And we grew up a little farm out of town, a bit like what your mum has here, just a hobby farm. And casino was just awesome. It was just all about Saturday sports. Um, We had beef week. Beef week was the biggest week in in the town where you had breakfast with the butchers. And I just had an awesome childhood. And um, it was when I was about five, they pick up, I had a hearing loss. And so I had hearing aids and speech therapy and So I had a real sense of what it was like to have a disability and feel a little bit different. And sport was really important for me in terms of feeling included and the same as everyone else. And then I went off to boarding school, Toowoomba, uni. So all the while, though, my eyesight wasn't great. And it wasn't until I was about 21, 22, out with mates at the pubs when I was at uni. And I just would bump into things all the time or trip over and everyone would think I'd had one too many beers and... You know, we just couldn't quite work it out until I saw an ophthalmologist and they said, Katie, the reason for your hearing loss is you have an eye condition called uh, retinal pigmentosis, which is tunnel vision, and combined it's called a condition called Usher syndrome. So that's sort of led me on the pathway to being a vision-impaired paratriathlete. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that you didn't get diagnosed with ushers until you were a bit older. For people who don't understand or have never heard of it, can you tell us a bit more about what that is yeah like with the first there I was at 21 22 and I had my dream job at the NRL and so I really felt had it was in a really good place um I guess in terms of confidence and you know my sense of self and starting my sports marketing career so to sit in this chair and be told I had this condition Usher syndrome I was like what what the what the heck's Usher syndrome and it took me back to I used to be an usher at the Queensland Performing Arts Complex when I was at uni in Brisbane and I used to usher people into their seats and I used to dread the people that would come when the lights went out for the Australian Ballet or the Symphony Orchestra or Lion King and I'd be like, oh, no, because I needed the torch for myself because I couldn't see. So I did. So when I heard the word usher syndrome, I thought that explains why I was such a terrible usher. You know? um, so usher syndrome, yeah, it's a deafblind condition. So basically you lose your hearing and you lose your eyesight so my hearing was, um, you know, as a kid, I was 35 decibels. Now I'm 85, which means I'm profoundly deaf. I wear hearing aids. I might need to get cochlear at some point. Uh, and then your eyesight is basically you gradually lose your eyesight. So it's quite confronting. I'm now less than 10 degrees vision, so I've got good central vision but no peripheral. So I'm one of those people you see me at a pub or at a, an event or function or or a coffee shop, if you go to shake my hand and I'm looking at you, you you're just left hanging. <laughs> and I go, oh, sorry, I didn't see your hand. Um, so it affects one in four kids with hearing loss. It's a rare condition and it's a genetic condition. So I'm one of five kids, five uh, siblings, and um, I'm the only one that has that 
that gene. And um, there's no cure at this stage. So, yeah, George, it, it's been um, something that I've just accepted and, you know, I've always been very positive, uh, but it is it, it's, it's challenging living with hearing and eyesight loss on a daily on a day to day, and you know, um, yeah, yeah, can definitely speak to your positivity. I remember when I first learnt about your condition as a kid, and I was probably far older than you would maybe think, and I just never had any idea about it. Like you, just live in such a way that no one would ever notice, and you are so incredibly positive about it. So it's awesome. We'll get into what sort of life looks like now and like you said it's degenerative a little bit later but you mentioned then you were working at your dream job at the NRL you were there for a little while and then you moved down to the Melbourne Storm where we met Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work in sport before you became an athlete yeah sure so I did my um, Bachelor of Arts at Griffith Uni and then I did my Masters of Business at uh, University of Technology Sydney in my early 30s I was always passionate about women in sport. I mean, when I was 15, I remember writing to the Toowoomba Chronicle and just, you know, you can imagine this young 15-year-old saying, I am not happy about the lack of coverage of women in sport and why there's so much men's rugby league. And this is back in 1989. And, you know, it was... Trailblazer KK. Oh, look, I was trying to set the scene and I'm so glad to see the NRL, women's rugby league. I love it and and women's sport today. But... um, so sport was my passion and, uh, you know, to, to think I could have a career in sports, I just wasn't sure about that, but it did eventuate and I started with the NRL in a media sort of role. I was involved in the very first ever game that was held at the Olympic Stadium when it opened and it was a double header, and it just, I think it remains the highest record attendance of a rugby league match. It was something like 103,000, so... The capacity was 110 before the Olympics and for the Olympics, and then they downsized it. And then um, I, I knew John Rebo and Chris Johns. I'd met them sort of through the Brisbane Broncos and Super League, and they asked me, would I like to come to Melbourne Storm and work for them? And that was just so incredible. And I have to say also... Best decision you ever made. Best decision I ever made, <laughs> and I got to meet... My first person to greet me there was one legendary Mr Mick Moore, Katie Kelly, welcome to Melbourne Storm. I can his husky voice. <laughs> Your dad. And he took me under his wing. And I reckon probably the first thing he did was hand me a VB. Uh, you know, yeah. Um, he just, as the football manager, and we had a connection through family, but he just looked after me and, um, you know, this whole Storm culture was amazing. So to be part of that 99 Premiership winning team, I mean, I was part of it, Georgie. I was there. Absolutely, um, you were. But the club made you feel like you were part of it, even though you were office staff, but that's the sort of club it was. And I have to say, then I, I continued my career in um, uh, ANZ Stadium, um, Cabcorp, the NT government, and it's taken me all over Australia. Um, you know, I worked in Alice Springs for an Ashes series game between England and Australia before they did the Ashes that summer. And one of my other highlights, I worked for the Deaf Olympics, which were held in, held in Melbourne in 2005. I was a media officer for that. That was a volunteer role, surrounded by 400 Australian deaf athletes, all signing from all around Australia, playing their sports. It was just – so sport for me is just a great leveller. For, and I, that's why I'm so passionate about 
it has to be inclusive and it's about making sure no one gets left behind. Every young Aussie has a has the right, I think, to to have access to, to sport. And as you know, I've set up that foundation for that purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about the Sports Access Foundation. Yeah, so after Rio, when I won the gold medal in paratriathlon, it was December 2016. My brother Matt said, I need you to meet someone, Ruby. She's blind. She's been following you. Ruby got leukemia at the age of eight and her mum died at the age of four. She lost her sight overnight. So I can't imagine an eight-year-old. You think of an eight-year-old you know now and you think of that eight-year-old one day later and they have no sight and that was Ruby's story. And I went and met Ruby and she looked so frail and she didn't have much hair and she survived leukaemia and she's there in this room and she said Katie what's it like to compete with a guide and from that moment on I knew I had to do more in terms of um, giving back to this wonderful opportunity I had in the sport of paratriathlon as a vision impaired athlete so after that I with the help of friends and family set up sport access foundation and we provide grants for young Australians with disability to play sport. And we established in 2017 and we've given away over $50,000 in the last four years. And, and there's a massive need, George. Um, we know that young Aussies with disabilities, their participation in sport is a third less than kids without disability. There's just so many barriers. Even myself, now that I'm retired, for me to go for a bike ride, you know, I need a guide. And I need that guide to know how to ride a tandem. And to ride a tandem, it takes a good probably three, four, five, six rides to get used to it. Um, I want to do this open water school and data. I've got to find someone who is willing to give up their swim to swim with me. I want to go running on a Sunday. I need to, you know, get some mates to come with me to guide me. So you can imagine barriers for kids, whether they're amputee, cerebral palsy, um, intellectual challenges. There's just a lot more support they need for participation. Okay, so we'll backtrack a little. You mentioned <laughs> this all took off after you won gold at Rio, but that wasn't an overnight success. You got into running first, ran all around the world. What was sport an outlet for you? You mentioned before it being a level up. What got you into running at such a such long distances in the beginning? Yeah. Um, I think it was um, my dad did the city to surf. My dad's now about 78 and I remember as a kid he'd run up and down the – he'd have a, had probably had a few too many fosters the night before. You know, he was a lawyer in town so he was always sort of out with locals and he would run probably to sweat off his fosters. <laughs> but I remember he'd finish his run and us kids would be getting the bus and he also swam in the summer and my mum was active. So I had role models in my parents even then. There weren't many runners in the 80s. Like it just wasn't a thing. But Dad trained for the city to surf in Sydney and then he took my brother on a plane, the city to surf, you know. That was a big deal, Sydney city to surf. But in those days it would have been eight or 9,000 and now it's 40,000. So that was my first goal when I was about 21 was to do the city to surf. I did running during school, but I just got, I just loved it. And I started doing half marathons, Sydney Morning Herald half marathons. And then me and a friend decided to do New York Marathon for our 30th. And as I was losing my eyesight, running was also the most practical thing for me in the sense of I couldn't do team sports anymore. I love basketball, squash. But because I was losing my peripheral, you know, running's nice and one dimensional. 
And then, George, I thought, where's the most northerly marathon in the world? And it's in Norway at a place called Tromso. And you can run it at midnight in their summertime. So it's called the Midnight Sun Midnight Sun Marathon. And it's broad daylight. And I was like, this is perfect for someone who has no night vision. I can run at midnight, broad daylight. Fantastic. And they give you a Norwegian beer at the end of it in this big Norwegian glass. So, yeah, running was just a, a great little outlet. And, and with that, I got involved in triathlon just for fun and ocean swims. Like I did the Rottnest Island swim, Bondi de Bronte, all those sorts of things that weekend warrior type people do. So, yeah. So you did touch on how difficult that process is for you in terms of you ride a tandem bike when you do tries you have a swimmer guide with you when you say you got into triathlons just for fun how actually was that transition process obviously you needed a bit more support than the average how does that come about yeah I guess um when I moved to Newcastle and by this stage I'm saying my mid-30s and I joined a triathlon squad and the coach, Benny Higginbottom, was great. And I said to him, I really want to do the Ironman. But, you know, by the time I start that 42K run after swimming 3.8, riding 180, the run will be starting at, you know, um, as the, the evening sets in about 5 p.m. And he said, don't worry, I'll run with you and I'll run with the torch and I'll be your guide. So that was when I started those conversations with people around me where I'm like, okay, I'm losing my eyesight, I can't ride a bike by myself, what are the changes I need to start making? And even then I started doing a lot of indoor riding on on a wind trainer, so people use kick-ass now. And there were some sessions I couldn't do, like the early morning run session because it was too dark and whatever. But I guess, George, when you have a kind of condition like I do or a physical impairment and whatever, you're always just trying to find solutions. You know, how can I still participate, stay involved and do what I love doing? And that's just as an aside why the NDIS is really important because the NDIS gives you a funding stream called social and community participation. So for someone like me, I rely on friends and people to give up their time or come and pick me up to take me somewhere which, you know, I need that extra support. So it's really wonderful that we have the NDIS because it empowers people and ensures that we're not participating in the things that you would normally do because of our inverted common disability. So in a nutshell, that's sort of been my approach as my condition has deteriorated. It's sort of like, okay, well, what do I need and who can I get support from? Or sometimes you just have to accept that, yeah, running on the road in a, in a running group and riding is no longer possible for me. So you sort of you lose that. And, and with that, I say there's always a bit of a grieving process because it's like, oh, I can't do that anymore. But, you know, in the scheme of things, they're not bad problems to have. But I think it's it's always about all of us looking at people around and going, who's not part of our community here and why and what can we do to make it more inclusive? Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about it like that, but, you know, athletes often speak about the grieving process when they retire. So I suppose you'd experience that along the way as different things became less accessible to you okay so you're a triathlete now you've started competing all around the world Mm. and you land at rio and were the first ever gold medalist in the t5 triathlon tell us a bit about that experience what when did you know that the olympics were going to be within reach how how did that all unfold yeah well i'll take you to a phone call in january 2015 
I just seen the ophthalmologist. She confirmed, Katie, you're now legally blind. I left that appointment to go back to work in Sydney in a taxi. I made two phone calls. First one was to my sister, Bridge, and it was a few tears. I'm like, oh, Bridgie, you know, I'm now legally blind. And she said, well, well you knew this was going to happen, so just cope with it and move on. And the second phone call was to Triathlon Australia because I was wondering, how can I do the Hawaii Ironman as a vision-impaired athlete? And they said, Katie, did you know that we're looking for vision-impaired athletes to compete at Rio Paralympics in 18 months' time? So that was January 2015. And to take everyone fast forward, basically in 18 months, I went from making that phone call to being on the podium with number one under my feet with McKeeley Jones as my guide standing beside me in the green and gold tracksuit with a gold medal around my neck. My mum and dad and my four brothers and sisters and three or four of my besties were there, including your mum and Jesus the Redeemer in the background, Cocabana Beach, and I won Australia's first ever gold medal in the sport of paratriathlon. It was extraordinary, um, and oh, it just came out of that one phone call. It gives me, like, <laughs> yeah, it makes me emotional even thinking about it. It was such an exciting time for all of us. I can't imagine what it feels like being sat down and told that you're officially legally blind, and yeah. that I imagine would have been yeah. a pretty confronting thing to be told, yeah. even though you were expecting it at some point. Yeah. So to turn that car ride into a moment that has since changed your life. That's just unbelievable. What was the highlight of Rio? Uh, there were so many. I think the, the reason for my success and it was what I really appreciate, George, is going to two Paralympics was how elusive the gold medal is. I think you hear like rugby league players grand final NRL in their first season and then they realise how hard it is to win another one. It's a bit like that with the gold medal. So in Tokyo, I came six. I think the highlights were, I think, hugging my dad after the race. You know, here I am as a, um, my, your parents, you know, what, what your parents do for you in a lifetime. And it was just the best thing to be able to give them that joy on that day, you know, um, everything they'd done for me with coping with hearing and eyesight loss and, you know, the grief that they feel with that at times and sadness. And I'm always saying, don't be sad for me, I'm fine, you know, but parents never stop worrying. So hugging my dad after the race, I'll always remember. I remember the feeling, George, of being at that start line on the floating platoon in Cocobana Beach because we actually started out in the ocean on a floating platoon. And I very remember clearly sitting there thinking, here I am surrounded by the 10 best vision-impaired paratriathletes in the world, all women like me who some are albinism, some have no sight, and thinking how incredible is we're all here, all overcome our own adversity with vision loss. And, and this is the moment. And I remember thinking this is just incredible. Here I am representing Australia at the highest level. So I think in Rio I was really present. And a lot of that led to my success. I think any high-performance athlete would tell you how many things have to come right to execute your best possible performance. And most of it is all with your mindset and how present you are and just focusing on what you need to do and really enjoying that moment too. So the other moment, of course, is crossing the line. I was just going to say crossing the finish line and... Um, 
holding the banner and I vividly remember holding that banner and feeling the texture of the banner in my hand, the texture of that finishing banner and thinking I've done it, you know, I've won the gold. And McKeely, my guide, just kept repeating, KK, you've won the gold, you've won the gold. KK, you've won the gold, you've won the gold. So, yeah, it was amazing. Oh, gives me chills just talking about it. Do you want to talk us through the process of what it takes to find a guide a little bit? Obviously, they have to be at Olympic standard themselves to keep up with you and you have to have that incredible bond so that you can compete so well together. What's the process of that look like? Yeah, there's um, primarily it's about the sporting body, Athletics Australia or Swimming Australia or Triathlon Australia, in my case, go out looking. They sort of have a short list of uh, you know, at that power triathlon level, a guide has to be retired. I think it's three years from their, um, so they can't be a current professional triathlete. So, finding that sort of high level guide can be a challenge. But then you also have athletes, like in the case of Bree, who came with me in Tokyo, who was an outstanding age group type triathlete. Um, she wasn't in the high performance program, but she was sort of at that tipping point, and they made a we put a call out through the Queensland Academy of Sport um, and so a number of girls sort of put their hand up and, yeah, the, gu- the guide partnership is a big one. You spend so much time together. I mean, what Brie gave up four years for Tokyo, she would leave Brisbane at 4am in the morning to meet me to start riding at 6am and we'd ride for three hours. She'd do that three times a week. She was working full time. You need to build a lot of trust and respect um, you need a guide that, you know, is vocal, uh, is able to get the best out of you. And I guess but like in a team kind of environment, you never want to let your teammates down. And it's very much like that with the guide-athlete partnership was I never wanted Bree to think I wasn't putting in. And that was really the adrenaline of every session and the sort of like tension that you felt was I need to execute this session, I need to do what Bree wants me to do or what my coach wants me to do. But I encourage people out there, I mean, at the moment I'm looking for guides just to, so I want to do the half marathon on the Gold Coast. I've got a couple of friends in mind and it's about them getting fit and ready for it. But there's an organisation called like Achilles, uh, Achilles Australia, I think it is, and they have people who put their hand up to run with other people across Australia. There's a good group in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane also Blind Sports Australia. You can sort of register yourself with them as someone who might like to be a guide on a tandem or, you know, with a runner. So I encourage you to do that. And even like my young nieces, I've said to them, look, why don't you think about putting your hand up as a guide for other vision-impaired athletes that you might know, you know, across schools? It's very rewarding and, you know, I think it provides a different sort of challenge for people to do. So that's a little bit of insight for you on guides. Yeah, that's awesome. I hadn't really thought about that, but what a yeah rewarding process for people who want to compete at those sorts of events. That's awesome. Yeah. You mentioned the elusiveness of the gold and that you then competed in Tokyo and came sixth. And that, I think, speaks also massively to the growth of the sport over the past five years between Rio and Tokyo. How was that process again? It was obviously delayed by a year with COVID. The Olympic landscape was very different by the time you went again in Tokyo and retirement was on the brain. How how did that all unfold? Was What was the experience like the second time around? 
I know you'd been injured quite a bit between as well. There's lots yeah. of challenges there. Yeah, and some people said, oh, do you regret not retiring after Rio? I think I felt I had still had more to give, and I certainly did. I won another world championship the year after Rio, and then I came third in the world championship in 2018, and then 19 and 20, I had some injuries. But then I came good from twenty mid-20 right through to 21. But it was my age that was catching up on me. So to give people an idea that the person who came first in my race was 34 and I'm 46 and second and third were 24 and 25. And so, you know, we're talking a good 20-year gap. Spring Um, chickens. Yeah. (laughs) And I obviously training at that level at my age, it's a a different ball game. I look at it now and and Mm. how I did it, but... In some ways, I think my performance at Tokyo was absolutely epic and the better than Rio because it was harder in terms of... You think eh? it absolutely was. It was amazing. Yeah. I said, that's not a I think question. That's a definite. It was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I think six was just... Uh, we. I had the capacity, the, the strength, the conditioning to, to get on the podium to finish third. Uh, I just didn't have the run and, um, you know, you live for that day every day for about four, any athlete would tell you in an Olympic cycle, that's all you think about and visualise for four years and it was all in for me and so now I'm out of that bubble. I'm sort of, someone said you're reinventing yourself a little bit because it's like from one extreme to try and get back to a little bit more normality in the way I and realising, Georgie, I don't have to train twice a day and your mum's trying to cut me back to once a day at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Still very committed and competitive you are. Yeah, that's awesome. So we started off with retirement. We'll finish with it here. You are now happily retired, like you said, trying to wean yourself off training like a true professional. What is next for Katie Kelly? Well, I'm, um, I started working for Bluescope. Uh, so it's a global steel company, $9 billion company in top 200 ASIC listed. It's operating out of 16 countries worldwide. So I work for their corporate office, which is Melbourne Basin. I'm very grateful I can work remote. And I'm in their social inclusion and impact team. So I'm doing a lot of work around sort of policy governance, but also uh, high-level in terms of developing their people and culture, or in terms of inclusion and diversity, human rights, that sort of thing. So loving the role that I'm doing. And in addition, I'm still obviously on the board of Sport Access Foundation. We're working with this agency called Tribal. It's part of the DDB group. Um, they're a worldwide agency. They love the Sport Access Foundation story. We've got this major announcement coming up in a few months and it's going to be a real game changer. It's a... It's really exciting. We've been developing this prototype. So, and then I've just been doing some speaking engagements, which I love doing and sharing my story and and spending time with friends and family, George. You know, this weekend I get to go to Byron Bay Blues Festival. I'm going away for Easter, things that I haven't done for the last six or seven years. So it's a, it's a really good... Coming to visit me later in the year. <laughs> yeah, I could. That's on the radar. Awesome. Any advice for children or youth experiencing disability that you can give any pearls of wisdom for us, KK? 
Well, I think for um, sort of young people in general is um, is is looking after your physical and mental well being, and everyone has challenges, and I see my challenges as relative in the scheme of life. We all will face tough times, and I think when you're going through a really tough time, it's good to think about it as these are the little like these are the little gold nuggets that you need. It can be really hard when you're in a really challenging space. For example, recently I was told I need to learn Braille, and Georgia, I nearly, I literally nearly dry wretch, vomited because I never imagined that I would have no sight. It was so confronting, and I've had a, you know, the time has been good, but I've had some other sort of personal challenges, and I just think for all of us is that we have to, you know, embrace them as much as we can. Um, look after ourselves in the way of connecting and like I've really reached out to friends and family recently to support me through some some of these times that I'm having and it's almost like you have to do the work invest in yourself um, so that you can put yourself in the best possible place to get through challenges so I, I guess I say that because we know that you know that mental health is a is a big talking point and coming out of COVID and people really having some challenges so do the work on yourself and you have to be proactive as well you know you can't always expect that help's going to come to you that's why I've gotten where I've gotten to is just that knowing that you have to be proactive and seek out help and you know there's always opportunities so there's a little bit there for you George to take away yeah you're amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. I am so grateful for the chat. I learn from you all the time. Um, and I'm sure everyone else will now too. So it's been a long time coming. So stoked to finally get you on the podcast. Enjoy Amos Farm for a few more days. Thanks, George. I love the show and what, what you guys are doing. And, you know, more women's voices out there talking about sports is fantastic. So you've got me in and Keep up the good work. Fantastic.